Again, what a joy it is to be with you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 62. Our sermon text this morning will be from Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. Before I read the text, would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, Your Word calls us to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We have died who believe in Jesus, and our life is hid with Christ in God. And so as we seek Your heavenly dwelling place this morning, we pray that Your Word would build us up in the things of heaven, that we would read and digest and submit and believe and even obey all that the Spirit says to the churches. And we pray this for Your own glory and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This weekend we have been beginning a look at Old Testament verses of anticipation. This is the theme of a weekend like this. Anticipation for the Lord's Day, Tomorrow, perhaps, personal examination as well. But it's in line with the theme of anticipation that we have looked together at ways in which the Old Testament prophets in particular anticipated the new things that Jesus would bring in history. The Bible promises that God's Messiah will inaugurate and then consummate a new and permanent kingdom. If all of the newness can be wrapped up under one heading, it is, it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. A holy realm and a holy place where God reveals His right and His might and His glory in an unprecedented way. The arrival of the revelation of God's glory in this consummate kingdom was, in fact, the original purpose of creation. All the way back in the garden, God gave to the human race a provisional kingdom, an earthly kingdom, a garden that was very good, sinless. But even the Garden of Eden was designed to give way to something greater. It was very good, but not yet perfect. Through the obedience of our first father Adam in that original covenant, God designed the creation to to transition from from a realm of impermanence to a realm of permanence and glory and perfection. After the fall, God replicated some of these features in the holy place that He gave His chosen nation Israel. It was, again, a kind of provisional kingdom. A kingdom that was designed to give way to something greater, something more permanent, something unlosable in the kingdom of heaven on earth. So God sent His prophets uh, to His chosen nation to remind the people that they were to live as becomes the followers of God. They were to exhibit the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Not that the obedience of the nation would, would, would bring the kingdom of Christ into human history, but, but their obedience was to reflect the kind of righteousness through faith that was befitting the ultimate kingdom that would come. And so the prophets were the watchmen of Israel. They were the mouthpieces of God who called the people to faith and repentance and obedience. 
And the prophets were the ones through whom God said that, that Canaan, like Eden, was to give way to something more glorious. We said last night that, that as Israel rebelled and as Israel spurned the grace of God and presumed upon God's good gifts and failed to know the God who desired fellowship with His people through faith, again and again through the prophets, God reminded His people that His character was unwavering, as was His purpose. And His purpose was to redeem His people from slavery to sin and and bring them into unbreakable fellowship with Himself. And we saw uh, briefly last night how God promised through Ezekiel that He would give His people a new heart, that He would take spiritually dead sinners and He would make them alive to God and sensitive to God. And ultimately, He would do this by raising His own incarnate Son from the dead so that the actual power of Christ's own resurrection would be implanted in the hearts of sinners to make them alive to God. Well, this morning we turn to another prophet and to the book that goes by his name, Prophet Isaiah. Let me give you just a crash course in this book. As many of you know, Isaiah ministered roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ. He ministered at a time when the nation of Israel was falling into a terrible state. And we really have to feel this if we're to grasp the glory of our text from Isaiah 62. During Isaiah's ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel was committing treason against God. The people were debasing themselves with other nations for for material gain. The prophets Hosea and also Ezekiel have very vivid metaphors to describe the kind of infidelity that Israel was exhibiting. Israel was doing what God had warned them not to do when He covenanted with them at Sinai. They were were forgetting God. And all of it was leading to, to the great destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah at the time was somewhat less corrupted by idolatry, but eventually Judah would repeat the sins of her older sister, northern sister, And roughly a century after the Assyrians wiped her off the map, Judah would be overrun by the Babylonians. Psalm 74 transports us to the moment when the Babylonian army kicked down the gold-plated doors of the temple in Jerusalem. The psalmist says, Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. All its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. The Babylonian exile was a time when the people of God cried. They cried for shame. They cried for guilt. And they cried out to God. Psalm 77 articulates their heart's cry. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? I wonder if you've ever asked those questions in your own heart as you wrestle with the fallenness of this age, as you face the reality of sin and death and sickness and pain? Has God forgotten to be gracious? 
has he in anger shut up his compassion? Well, Isaiah 62 is one of God's most glorious answers to those questions. It is God speaking here in Isaiah 62. Uh, I think this is a, a good case can be made that God is the one speaking because elsewhere in Isaiah we see God using the language of not resting, not waiting, but acting on behalf of His people. In one of the great servant songs of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, we read of, of God's own servant, the Messiah, as having the same determination. In Isaiah 42, the servant will not grow faint or be discouraged. Until when? Till he has established justice in the land. Justice there being a synonym for the salvation that he will bring to the ends of the earth. Well, here God is using similar language in Isaiah 62. Let me read the first five verses to us. God says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Well, let's look for the moment at that opening verse. God declaring His insistence, His determination to act on behalf of His people. For Zion's sake, He says, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her, that is Jerusalem's, His people's righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. God here is looking into the time of deep darkness when, when His name, as it is borne by His people, was nearly blotted out on the earth. And He says He will not rest until He has vindicated His name by saving His people. Now, this is what Isaiah 62 is about. It is about God's restless and relentless purpose to save His people. To bring them into that everlasting bond of fellowship with Himself that can never be lost. To give us all that we were made for as His image. So similarly to what we did last night with the new heart that God promised in Ezekiel, I want to look with you particularly at the declaration that God will give us a new name in verse 2. But we want to do justice to all five verses. And so we will look at the other things that God promises here as well. And I think it's fair to say, comparing last night to the text this morning, that if, if Ezekiel declared what God would do in his people, Isaiah 62 tells us what God will do with his people. If Ezekiel declares to us what God does in the heart, Isaiah is telling us what God is doing with His church in the world. And the first thing that God says He will do with His people in the world is He will give the world an inescapable witness to His righteousness. An inescapable witness to His righteousness. Look at the text of verse 1 and verse 2. We might wonder initially why why 
why I say that God will give the world an inescapable witness to His righteousness. Because the text actually says that it's Jerusalem's righteousness that will be seen. Verse 1 says Jerusalem's righteousness will go out as brightness. And the nations, God says, will see your righteousness. But of course, we only need to look back at verse 1 and and understand who God is. that, That whatever rights, whatever release from the exile that they had brought upon themselves, whatever blessing God would bestow upon His people, and I I think the word righteousness here carries all of these ideas, whatever righteousness the world was going to see in Israel, it was a righteousness that would come not from them, but from God. This is, of course, consummately true in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Particularly in that benefit of our fellowship with Christ, our justification. When God declares that we are in the right with Him, when He declares in the councils of heaven that that we have fulfilled the law's demands, it is not because we have existentially and personally fulfilled those demands, but, but it is only because God has graciously imputed to us, reckoned to us, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that comes from outside of us and clothes us. Martin Luther famously called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from without. Therefore, Paul says in Philippians 3, we do not have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So if we were to connect Ezekiel to to this declaration of righteousness for all who are united to Christ, we could say that that in the Gospel, as, as the Word goes out by the power of the Spirit, Christ lays hold of us and in the, in the Spirit grants to us a new heart. Makes us alive to God. And then out of that new heart, we lay hold on Christ through faith. And that faith then is the instrument. It is the means. It is the open mouth by which we receive Christ's own righteousness as our righteous road. And like Scripture's declaration of our need for the for the new heart that the Spirit grants. The Scripture's teaching concerning our need for this alien righteousness cuts deep against our pride. It cuts deep against what our fallen hearts instinctively want. We want the world to see our righteousness, our compliments, our deeds, our insights, those things of which we think we can take credit Perhaps above all, in our fallen nature, we want God to see and appreciate our righteousness. Even if it's just a crumb that we can offer to God. John Murray, the theologian, writes, there is no more basic or fundamental error in the whole realm of religion than to think that a man is accepted in the sight of God, that he is justified by God on the basis of what he himself is or on the basis of what he himself is does. Even if we come to our senses and acknowledge that we have no crumb of righteousness to give to God, we at least want to be seen as righteous in the world. This is the kind of world we live in, isn't it? All around us we see a world that glories in virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. Corporations all around us publicly endorse social causes and and the new sexual revolution. But it's to make money. Politicians make empty gestures and grand promises. But it's to garner votes so often. 
Uh, people, people signal on social media that they believe the popular things, the right things, oppose the wrong things. Uh, but it's to, to be liked, to get likes. But friends, the emptiest and the most futile and the most deceiving kind of virtue signaling happens when we try to signal to God that we have a bit of righteousness to offer Him. And at that moment, we have really lost sight of who God is, haven't we? There's a passage in Calvin's magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, where he he sets us straight. Calvin says, as long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness and wisdom and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly. We fancy ourselves to be demigods, he says. But suppose we begin to raise our thoughts to God, to ponder His nature, and how completely perfect are His righteousness and wisdom and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then what masqueraded earlier as righteousness will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfection corresponds ill to the purity of God. God does not want our native righteousness to be seen, for there is no such thing. He wants His righteousness to be seen. And God will do this on the last day. Yes, in an outpouring of divine wrath upon an unbelieving world, He will manifest His his righteousness to the glory of His justice. But in the midst of human history, God has deigned to reveal His righteousness in another way. First, by pouring out that final judgment upon His Son, and then by clothing us in the righteousness of that same Son. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 3, isn't it? God put forward His Son as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, we might say in our hearts that, that I see God's righteousness revealed in the justification of sinners, but the world never sees it. This is an invisible declaration to the world on behalf of the church, and the world at large still carries on in its dark pursuit of selfish merit and reputation and virtue signaling and lust for power and control. We might ask, reading Isaiah 62, where is the worldwide testimony to the righteousness of God for all to see? Well, we can say first, in the midst of history, God reveals His righteousness in the church when Christians live out their union with God. Not only when Christians rest in the righteousness of Jesus imputed to them, but when by the power of the Holy Spirit, by a regenerated heart, they begin to live as believers. When we repent of sin, when we apologize for a hurtful word, when we seek to honor Christ in our marriages and in our dating life and in our child rearing, when we fight temptation and suffer for the sake of Christ, therein the righteousness of God is being revealed to the world. Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father is in heaven. And then, of course, looking ahead, we can confidently say that the whole world will see the righteousness of God not only clothing the church in unspotted splendor, but bursting through the church 
as a burning torch when God glorifies His church on the resurrection of the last day. And brothers and sisters, on that day, the inescapable witness to the righteousness of of God will indeed be inescapable. For the church itself will be a perfect reflection of the pure, undiluted uprightness of the being of God. Well, this brings us to verse 3 of Isaiah 62 and the second effect, the second thing uh, that God will do in the salvation He's bringing. I want you to note we're not skipping the new name in verse 2. It's just that the fullest explanation of that new name comes later in the text in verses 4 and 5. But let's look for a moment at verse 3. The second thing God will do with the church in the world is make her a crown of beauty in His hand. He will make the church a crown of beauty. This fits with what we've said about the righteousness of Christ shining in the church both now and visibly in the future because the crown of beauty mentioned in verse 3 is none other than the Lord's people redeemed in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. God says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now this reference to a crown may hark back to Isaiah 28 where God had referred to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim that will be trodden underfoot. God is indicting His people. And He may be referring indeed to the crown of garland of flowers worn by drunken partygoers. Maybe you've seen the, the ball dropping in New York City and all the partiers in Times Square with their paper hats and plastic glasses. And if you've ever been there, and I have no desire to be there, but by 3 a.m., where are those plastic hats and glasses? They, they're trampled in the streets. They're, they're filthy. They're left behind. It's also possible that God was indicting the proud crown of Ephraim in, in the way that Samaria, the capital of Israel, was set high upon a hill. A, a geographical expression of their pride before the Lord. And God is saying their prideful crown will be trampled down. But now, He says, in Israel... God will make His people into a crown of beauty that will never fade. In New Testament terms, the crown is the church of Jesus Christ. The church is the masterpiece of God through His Son. One Old Testament commentator says this, speaking of the crown of verse 3, this crown is not the crown which the eternal God wears upon His head, but the crown wrought out in time, which He holds in His hand. The whole history of salvation is the history of the taking of the kingdom and the perfecting of the kingdom by Jehovah. In other words, listen to this, it is the history of the working out of this crown. What is human history about? It is about God fashioning a crown of beauty in His hand. This is amazing when we think sometimes about our own local church and the the struggles that are in it and the people that are in it. That God views the church and calls the church His own joy and crown. This is the way Paul talks about his, his readers there in Philippians. My brothers whom I love and long for. My joy and my crown. How many husbands can tell their wives, you, you are my joy and my crown. How many parents can tell their children, you, you are my joy and my crown. Oh, this should settle our anxious hearts. All of human history is in God's hand. All of it is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ has come so that God may work out this crown of beauty in His own people. For Christ has come to redeem and beautify this crown. To change the metaphor just a little bit, Scottish preacher Eric Alexander, years ago in the late 90s, was 
was speaking in England at the 350th anniversary of the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he describes visiting the Westminster Abbey where, where the confession was written. And inside the abbey, there, were, there was scaffolding all on the inside to beautify the interior of the space. And after a bit, Eric Alexander said this, What is the really important thing that is happening in the world in our generation? Where are the really significant things taking place? Where is the focus of God's activity in history? The most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. He is perfecting them. He is changing them. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. Then he said this, And there will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. Do you know what He will be pointing to when He says to the whole creation, there is my masterpiece? He will be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. And in the forefront of it all will be the Lord Jesus Himself who will come and say, here I am and the children you have given me perfected in the beauty of holiness. This is what Isaiah is telling us in Isaiah 62, that God on the last day will hold up His crown to the world as the most marvelous work of His hands. Is there anything better than to delight in this? That you and I in Christ Jesus will not only receive the unfading crown of glory, but there's a sense in which we will be the crown of glory, fashioned by the God who has loved and redeemed us. Well, the text isn't quite done. We've We've not yet gotten officially to the new name that comes in earnest in verses 4 and 5. We've seen that that God will present to the world with His church an inescapable witness to His righteousness. He will hold up a crown of unrivaled beauty in His hand. And the third thing that Isaiah tells us, God will lead His church into an everlasting marriage with God Himself. This is the context of the new name He promises to give, isn't it? Back in verse 2, it's the context of a marriage. There is new naming going on in a marriage all the way back from the Garden of Eden. Now in that context, in the wake of the fall, Adam's naming of his wife was a declaration of faith in the promises of God. Eve, the mother of all living, trusting in that Genesis 3.15 promise. But there's a lot going on in the name that is given in a marriage. Traditionally, for a wife to take her husband's name signifies a lot. What does it mean? Well, it's a sign of identifying with her husband. uh, To be with him as long as they both shall live. It's a mark of coming under his loving, sacrificial protection. It's a sign of their making a home together in in a covenant bond. And, And all this is involved in the new name that God says he will give to his people. Years ago, before I got married, I I lived with a, a roommate who confided in me in a moment of vulnerability that he was worried that a, that a girl would never want to marry him because of his last name. And I won't tell you his last name. Perhaps I'll tell you over a meal. But I tried to encourage my friend. I said, listen, no. The Lord will provide a girl for you who will love you, who will really, really love you. Assuming a man's last name, ladies, is something that, unless your priorities are very out of whack, you you don't get to choose. You get to choose the man, but perhaps not the name. 
If you stick to tradition, you, you have to go with the last name he gives you. But in the gospel, friends, there is no fear. There is no awkwardness. Only the new covering, the new protection, the new status of a people loved by God. And it's always a better name than the name we once had. What does Isaiah say here? Verse 4 says Israel did have a prior name, unofficially reflected in her status. Her name was forsaken and desolate. This is the name that all of us have in fallen Adam before we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel knew desolation when Babylon invaded. There's a coin from a period of, of, of later Israelite history at the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. And the coin pictures a dejected woman sitting under a palm tree, and under the, 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 the picture are the words, Judea capta. Judah has been conquered. And that's, that's the picture of Israel when God speaks these words. But look at the new name God gives. In Hebrew, the name is Hephzibah. My delight is in her. Incidentally, this is the name of the mother of one of Judah's most wicked kings, King Manasseh. Manasseh was taken uh, to Assyria in hooks and chains, into Babylon, rather. We learned that, that at the end of his days, however, Manasseh repents, and, and God brings him back to Jerusalem, and he, and he shows Manasseh the grace of his mother's name. And we read in 2 Chronicles 33, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was his God. We don't know if all this is in the background here of the new name God promises to give Israel, but we know that the idea of return, the idea of repopulation in the land is present because in verses 4 and 5 we read that the land will be called married and Israel's sons will marry the land. It's a strange description, but, but the idea here is that, the, that Israel will be filled and cared for and cherished by the sons of Israel, by His people. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus Christ, whether you are married or single, or widowed, or young, or old. In Jesus Christ, you are learning to love the land of heaven, the land to which Israel was to point. And you begin to love the land of heaven because the name that God has given you is the best name. It is the name of King Jesus, risen and reigning. It's a name when it is written upon your heart through faith that identifies you with Christ and Christ with you. It identifies that you are under His loving authority and His protection. It's a name that holds your place in heaven above, ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a name that signifies permanence. The new name that no one can take away. We baptize our children into the name of God. We pray that they would lay hold of all that that name signifies. But when you actually come to faith and God writes that name on your heart, Christ Himself shares His name with you. He actually says this at the end of our Bibles in Revelation 3.12. Listen to what the risen Christ says to the church. He says to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Do you know that Jesus has a new name? Jesus, risen from the dead, is the name above every name. And when that name is written on you, it's a name that, that applies His conquering of sin and death and hell to you. It covers all of your guilt, all of your sin, as His righteousness covers you like a robe. It's a name that by the power of the Holy Spirit beautifies you more and more into a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. Whatever you've done, the name of the Lord Jesus makes you 
beautiful. And it is a name in which God the Father delights and delights to give His people. If there's anything that the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ confirms to us this morning, it is that God actually delights in His people. And He loves His people not merely as the result of the cross work of Christ, but He delights in His people with a love that actually fueled the giving of Jesus in the Gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And as we receive Him, as as the love of the Father is poured out through the Son and, and then poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, God says that He delights in us. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called. My delight is in her. Friends, I hope we're beginning to see the multifaceted ways that Scripture speaks of all of the new things that Christ has inaugurated and will one day consummate in the world and particularly in our lives. No one description can capture it. So we'll have to keep going. But as we begin to behold the glory of God and this newness of Christ, let us be glad in our Maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. For yes, the Lord takes pleasure in His people. And He adorns the humble with salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for the name of Jesus. That name above every name. That name given to Him with all authority in heaven and on earth. That name which He deigns to share with us. Oh, Father, we pray that we would not take that name, that we would not bear that name in vain, but that we would know the power of it, the joy and strength in it, and that we would worship You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.